one thing that a number of people have come up and asked me is, um, or at least expressed, is a little bit of franticness about figuring out what <laughs> type you are. <laughs> Um, I would really encourage you to relax about that. And just really let yourself as much as you can just sense in to the material that we're talking about. Let yourself feel into it. Um, One of the hard things about well, let me say this. Some people know immediately what type they are. They know it by picking up a book or picking up a book and immediately recognizing themselves. Other people have a much harder time figuring out what their type is. And part of the reason for that is that it's, it's a little bit like trying to look at your face from the outside, you know? It's a little bit like that. It's trying to figure out how you operate while you're inside of operating in that way. So for some of us, it's harder to figure out what our type is. It's really useful at some point in your work to figure out what your type is. What? Um, There's two lights behind you, Armando. If you could switch (laughs) Okay, great. Okay. So at some point, it's really good to know. It's very helpful and useful to know what your type is. And even if you don't know for a really, really long time, working with the principles that are expressed by each of the types is going to benefit you enormously. So again, I just encourage you, if you're having trouble figuring out what your type is, to let yourself relax about it and give your consciousness the time and the space to arrive at its own self-recognition. Okay, so uh, there, there was a woman attending the workshop who isn't feeling very well and we're not quite clear what's happened. So uh, I think 911 must have been called. So she's gonna go to Yeah, she's going to go get checked out at the hospital. Yes. I think that by the time you're, um, you reach, in astrological terms, your Saturn return at age 28, your structure is quite set. So that's a good time to start looking at how you are at that stage in your life, how you were at that point. 
<laughs> generally, generally, if you get more neurotic in your 30s or later, it's, um, it's an elaboration on the same theme, usually. And the, it's a hard thing, I think, in some ways to figure out what your type is, you know, because each of us has all of these qualities. So really getting what is most strong and um, part of it takes a lot of familiarity with knowing people who are of a particular type and who have been accurately typed, who know what their type is accurately. I've, I can't tell you how many people I've met who think they're something and I know they're not, you know. So it, once you have a sense of what the feel is of people of a particular type, and again, it's, it's a feeling quality, you find that you don't just kind of land on one characteristic or one feature or one trait um, because each type is really a gestalt. It's a totality. It's a wholeness. And to pick out one thread out of a wholeness doesn't really describe the whole thing. And that's part of the, part of the art of typing oneself. Okay, a couple of quick questions, and then I really want to move on. Okay, yeah. You talk about that the personality is formed around the holy idea, but to me it seems like it's more formed around the holy aspect, like <coughs> forms the personality around will, uh, but then holy will is number two point. And two seems to form the personality around love, but holy love is number nine point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the question. Let's see. I, I think I'll just answer the question. Maybe you'll get what the question was to begin with. The language of the enneagram is a little bit confusing, but um, each each of the types, and and it's it's a long conversation, so I don't want to get too far into it, but each of the types, um, let's see, how can I say it? Each of the types mimics the holy idea. So for example, for sixes, holy faith is one of the names of this holy idea. Sixes who have lost their true faith in the ground of reality become faithful to someone who appears solid. So they're mimicking holy faith. Twos, the holy idea being holy will, which has to do with God's will, the will that, that everything that's occurring is exactly the expression of true nature and is, from a theistic perspective, what God wills. The imitation of that for twos is becoming willful, pushy, manipulative. So that's what I meant when I was talking about that. I'm not going to go through all the types. Um, you can read about that. That'll take us rather far from what we're going to talk about this afternoon. And I think one of the things that hopefully you're starting to grasp from many of the different questions that people are asking 
is that we could spend a very long time talking about the Enneagram. There are nuances and levels of it, like the inner flow that I briefly touched on, the wings, the holy ideas, the idealized aspects. I mean, there are any number of different things that we could talk about, that we could explore experientially, that the Enneagram helps us to map. So you're going to be frustrated if you were hoping to leave here to have a thorough grasp of everything that the Enneagram can tell us today. Uh, I'm, I'm working with a, um, a group of teachers, n- new teachers in the Ridwan School and teachers in training that I've been working with now for, I think it's going on three years, and we're still just scratching the surface of what we can be exploring. So this is, I've worked with it now for 35 years, and I'm still understanding more things about it. So um, that's really important to get. It's, it's a live model. You know, it's, it's a living map that because it's alive and it, it's describing organisms that are alive, processes that are alive, i.e. ourselves, who are fundamentally an endless mystery that we can never fully nail down. Likewise, we can never fully nail down what's expressed in the Enneagram. Okay, so that said, I'm going to address another question that was asked of me during lunch, which is, what do you do about all this? So that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. How can we approach our inner process? How can we approach living in the consciousness that we inhabit in a way that helps to open up that consciousness, to help it to relax and to unfold and to deepen. Well, the Enneagram has a lot to say about that, and that's mainly expressed in the virtues, what are called the virtues. So what I'm going to talk about this afternoon is primarily related to the virtues. Beginning as we did this morning with point nine, the virtue is action. The virtues basically are, they're considered to be antidotes to the passions, and they're, as I said, qualities and characteristics that arise the more enlightened we become, the more free of personality, in other words, that we become. 
They're also what the Buddhists describe as skillful means. They describe orientations towards ourselves that help us develop. They're qualities that if we hold them in our consciousness as possibilities and as orientations for our inner work, support that work in being successful. Successful meaning helping us to get more deeply in touch with who we ultimately are, who we are beyond our personality structure. So the first virtue is action, the primary virtue. And it tells us, pay attention to yourself. Do your practices. Not in a super-egoic kind of way, like do your practices, but do them (laughs) if you want to grow. If you want to become more conscious, pay attention to yourself. If you want to learn about yourself, attend to yourself. It's basically kind of a no-brainer when you really consider it. The virtues all reflect natural laws. Whatever you put energy into is where your attention is going to go. It's very, very simple. Right? And we have all kinds of reasons, as we explored this morning, why we don't attend to ourselves. All of the outer pulls in our lives, the pulls away from ourselves. The virtue of point nine tells us, attend to those. Understand them. Why is what's going on in your life more important than you inhabiting your life? How come it's important for you to keep your attention diverted from yourself? When you're sitting, how come it's important not to fully be present? These questions all have answers. They have answers in our consciousness and in our unconscious as well. We are driven our personality is driven by beliefs. We're doing the best we can. Our personality is attempting to do what it thinks is going to benefit us. Looking from the outside we can see You know, not paying attention to myself doesn't benefit me. But for a part of us that believes that there's nothing important here to attend to anyway, it makes sense. Why bother? Now, what's worthwhile about my experience? So we need to explore those assumptions about our reality, inquire into them, to open them up. So the virtues then are giving us guidance about what we need to do and what kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves. 
And I'm not saying that this is the ultimate meaning or the ultimate way of interpreting the virtues. Other people talk about the virtues in different ways than I'm speaking about them now. This is the way that I understand them. This is what I see. And what I see is, of course, informed by my own spiritual path out of the diamond approach in which our primary methodology is inquiry, internal questioning about what's going on. Not intellectual, and that's something that's frequently misunderstood, but experiential questioning. What's driving my inattention? What's important about not being with myself? That's taking action. Point one, the virtue here is one I've mentioned already. It's serenity. And it tells us on the one hand that as the one, our one-ish tendency to judge our experience and to have, um, let's see, what's the word I'm looking for here? To have fixed ideas about what is okay and what isn't okay in our experience. As that tendency relaxes, we become less antagonistic toward our experience. When we're judging our experience, we're basically attacking ourselves. One of my colleagues, Byron Brown's written a great book about all about that, about our inner critic. As we stop that aggression towards ourselves, which is basically a way of hurting ourselves, we become more and more serene, more and more peaceful. Our, our consciousness becomes less and less combative with reality, inner and outer. How do we get there? We get there by questioning why do we need to attack ourselves and others, of course, but we're really much harder on ourselves than we are on anybody else. Why do we need to give ourselves a hard time to see a bit of truth? Why do we have to bludgeon ourselves to take in an insight about ourselves? One of the truths about the ways in which we attack ourselves, our superego attacks on our, our judgments about ourselves, is that usually there's a grain of truth in them. But the germane question is, do we really have to beat ourselves up to get that grain of truth? So, at point one, Skillful means is asking ourselves why we need to be combative with reality. 
What's important about that? What does it do for us? What do we believe we will gain from it? At point eight, the germane question is, on the one hand, there are a number of them, but one of them is, is my body my ultimate existence? Is what I can touch with my senses all that really exists? And can I uncover that prejudice that I bring to my experience? In other words, is it possible, I think I'll wait until the trucks move on, Is it possible to experience even my body directly and find out what it really is, what its nature really is? One of the major characteristics highlighted at point eight, as I think I said, is our tendency to come at reality with prejudice, with a kind of jaundiced eye that already has opinions formed around what is. And one of the most interesting inquiries that we can engage in is to explore what really is the nature of these bodies. One of the things that we find as we engage in that inquiry, that contemplation, which means directly experiencing this physical form, is we find that a lot of what we experience as body is ideas about body. And as those ideas open up, it becomes possible, it's a potential to experience our body as a light body, as the Tibetans describe, as a luminosity. One of the things that high energy physics has shown us is that matter is mostly space, but we don't experience that most of the time. We experience body as solid. We have a perceptual barrier. If we let ourselves fully, deeply inhabit our bodies without our preconceptions about what the experience of this form is, we might experience all of that space between every atom, every subatomic particle.
within us. Yes, 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 thank you. The virtue here is innocence. Innocence means experiencing ourselves and reality with an open soul. That's probably a bad word in this community. A charged word. With an open consciousness. can make a direct substitution between those two words. With an open awareness without our ideas informing what we experience. The inquiry here obviously is what's important about our ideas prejudicing what we experience. Okay. Moving to, let's see, where did I start last time? Six? Okay. Moving to the sixth corner. The virtue here is courage. And it talks about, or this virtue expresses, the fact that it takes a great deal of courage to turn toward ourselves, to be with ourselves. I think it's the hardest thing anyone can do. Perhaps second only to parenting. (laughs) Maybe it's harder than parenting, I'm not quite sure. But it takes enormous courage to face ourselves and to be with ourselves. Takes great courage to question who we've taken ourselves to be. You know, the work of unfoldment is basically the work of dismantling the scaffolding of our internal structure. For a lot of people, that seems really dumb. Why would you want to dismantle a structure that's kept you going all this time? Well, the answer is to find out what's really kept you going instead of what you think has kept you going. So courage is not the absence of fear, but it's the willingness to face what we fear and to start to actively engage our anxiety, our uncertainty, our inner shakiness, And not to try to shore ourselves up, but to find out what that shakiness is all about. And what we find is that the ego is a very shaky structure. It has to be. It's a concept. It's got no fundamental ground. No wonder we're scared. So that's part of the path at point six. Point seven, the virtue is sobriety. And sobriety is a teaching and an orientation toward our inner experience that 
tells us that for optimal development, we have to sober up. We need to land within ourselves, in other words, rather than escaping, rather than going off into our monkey mind and letting it carry us away into realms of fantasy, dreams, hopes. What is it? Hopes, dreams, and I don't remember the cycle in Buddhism, but anyway. So the teaching at point seven of sobriety is about settling within ourselves and letting ourselves be with what is really going on with us rather than trying to anticipate how things ought to go, what might be going on with us, how what's happening with us fits into some big picture. But basically, letting our experience follow our mind instead of having our mind lead our experience. So not becoming intoxicated by our mental activity is the teaching at point seven. And here, the big question is, what drives us to not settle within ourselves? to not land. What's compelling and intoxicating about our plans, our maps, our designs, our figuring out of how we tick? What's compelling about that? Why do we believe that's going to help us? What's true is understanding a map and having a map is useful, whether it's the map of the Enneagram or the map laid out in Buddhist uh, theory, you know, like the Four Noble Truths. Those are useful, but the real work happens in the immediacy of our experience. So what keeps us from that immediacy? What's more important about the concepts for us? That's the question posed to us at point seven. That's one of them. There are many, many more things that I could say, but I'm spending not terribly long this afternoon. Well, I'm spending enough time, but, you know, an hour talking about things that we could spend months exploring. Do you yeah. just repeat the question for number <laughs> For six? Yeah. Well, there, there are a few questions there. The, one of them is, what's so scary about being with myself? What is my fear all about? What's the nature of my anxiety? What drives it? What's behind it? Who am I taking myself to be? That 
can be attacked or hurt. What is it that I take myself to be that's precarious? These are big questions. These are very big questions. These are questions that go to the heart of what it is to have a personality. And they may not be relevant. They may be relevant to some of you. They might not be relevant to many of you for many, many years. But I think they're useful to have tucked away in a corner of your consciousness. Point five. The virtue here is non-attachment. And non-attachment, the image of the membrane dividing cells is one that always comes to mind for me when I think of um, this particular point and its virtue as well as its holy idea. That even though each of us is a separate individual, the membranes separating us are permeable. So holding on to anything, like if you imagine a cell holding on to all of its waste material and not letting anything in, it's going to starve and it's going to pollute itself. Right? So non-attachment speaks to the need that we have as human beings to be permeable to allow our experience to be permeable, to let things come and go within us. In other words, not to cling to positive experiences nor to negative experiences, but to allow ourselves to open up and be receptive to the ebb and flow of what comes to us and what leaves us. It's really what non-attachment is all about. And interesting questions that arise around this particular virtue have to do with why do I believe that my separateness is ultimate? Why do I believe, even deeper still, that the fact that my body is separate from every other physical form mean that my nature is something that is also separate? You know, the great paradox that we discover at point five is that even though each of us is a separate entity, that our nature is one thing. It's one of the great spiritual truths. Arriving at that truth is a matter of questioning our assumptions about our inherent isolation and separateness. So another way of, another question that becomes relevant here is, why do I have to cling to things to have them? And do I really have them if I cling to them? The great paradox is the more you hold on to anything, the less you have it. Right? 
So that's true on many, many levels. Okay, point three. The virtue is veracity, which means being truthful, being honest, being real. And the path to the truth, we discover at point three, has to do with recognizing how we deceive ourselves, being honest with ourselves about, first of all, how little we know ourselves, how shaped we are by our conditioning, how we adjust ourselves and form ourselves and our behavior in order to get love and approval. The nature of what doing is comes into question here. Who is it who does? We tend to believe that we are the primary mover and shaker in our lives. And we discover somewhere down the road that we have been moved and shook, shaken. And that we're just the expression of an endless and ineffable, ineffable dynamism. Point two, virtue here is humility, and it has to do with recognizing one's true limits. Ichazo defined humility as recognizing the limits of one's body. And I think that we can expand that understanding to mean recognizing at the deepest level what our true place in the cosmic scheme is as human beings. That might sound very cosmic and far-fetched. As individuals, what am I really? What am I capable of? What am I not capable of? In terms of the personality type of twos, twos tend to overextend and to try to be a superman or superwoman, to be all things to all people, you know, kind of like being a human cornucopia, constantly giving and, you know, doing everything that others would appreciate. The path for twos, for all of us, but especially for twos, has to do with really sincerely listening to our limits the limits of our body, the limits of our heart. What do I really want to do? What really matters to me? To ask ourselves questions like, am I doing this because I think that someone will love me or think I'm great? Or am I doing this because my heart is really in it? 
what really matters to me. Twos are always accused of being very selfish, but the reason is because they're not sensing and listening to themselves deeply enough. Our psyches are very, very interesting. We operate in paradoxical ways. We twos appear selfish, and we could talk of any of the other types doing, you know, behaving in ways that are paradoxical, but for twos, I think it's really interesting that the selfishness is a reflection of a lack of attention to self. It's a trying to get what's really needed. What's really needed is becoming more centered in oneself for twos. For all of us, but twos have a real tough time with that. Because they, their center, they place outward in others. So, the germane question is, Why does my center need to be somewhere other than me? How is that going to benefit other people? How is that an act of kindness? How is overextending going to benefit anyone? So, as that purported great two, Christ, said, charity begins at home. That's the real lesson at point two. Point four, virtuous equanimity. It has to do with not being, um, not being pushed and pulled by our emotional life. It has to do with giving equal valence, I think that's the word, equal weight, to whatever experience we're having. I talked about our pull toward what's painful, our draw toward our issues. Equanimity is giving equal weight to what's pleasurable, what feels good, what's positive. It's also giving equal weight to oneself. One of the characteristics about fours that I didn't mention and our four-ish tendency, universally for all of us, is our tendency to believe that the grass is greener somewhere else. That one over there has a much better practice than I do, much more developed. If only my experience could be like the one that I heard he or she describing. If only my experience were a little more this way or a little more Like that one's over there. Envy is the passion here. Equanimity, the virtue, is a teaching about opening to the positive within ourselves and within others and giving as much weight, let me say it a little bit differently, it's giving equal weight to everything that's occurring instead of having the balance tipped one way or the other. Does that make sense? So, some of the important questions here at point four are why do I believe that what's happening with someone else is better than what's happening with me? 
Why do I believe that what someone else has is better than what I have? What's the assumption underlying my belief that whatever I have isn't good enough? And of course, what's important about abandoning myself? Fours have a tendency to feel abandoned by others, and if you scratch the surface, the deepest abandonment is a self-abandonment in fours, a leaving of oneself. And it's not a simple inattention, like at point nine. It's a hateful self-abandonment. Oh, God, why would I want to be here? There's a feeling of, meh, bad, shameful, that fours carry with them. Okay, so let's work with this material a bit. Yes? Um, well, okay, the question is, what's the difference between the way nines don't pay attention to themselves and twos don't pay attention to themselves? Um, nines are, nines are there for other people because they find no value in being there for themselves. You know, they feel like there's nothing worthwhile here. For twos, it's a manipulation. If I'm there for you, you be there for me. It's the great giving to get game. Yeah. Nines are not ap- operating that way. You know it with twos because if someone doesn't give back to a two, hell hath no wrath. <laughs> you know, like a two who has not been given back to. So twos get really pissed off and real, you know, really spiteful. They move to eight. They get really, they're on a vendetta against that person. Nines, on the other hand, well, of course. Why would anybody pay attention to me? So actually for a nine to allow someone to be there for them is a huge challenge. Huge, huge Okay, let's do a little work with this. What I'd like you to explore this afternoon, again in a monologue, in groups of three, and I'd like you to spend 15 minutes on this one. So, let's see, let's be back here at... um, (coughs) Let's say 415. 4.15. I'd like you to take one of the issues, one of the obstacles that you talked about this morning, and I'd like you to start inquiring into it. And what I'm, what I'm asking you to do is something very simple. Just ask yourself, start asking yourself the question, how come? How come and what's important about this? 
So, if one of the things that you came up with this morning is a basic inattention to yourself and a difficulty attending to your practice if you're a meditation practitioner or if you have some other kind of practice, to start asking yourself, to ask yourself in this inquiry, what's behind that? How come? Why don't I do what it is that feels right to me to do? How come what's important about not being with myself? Now, you've heard me rattle off a number of things that might be behind that. I want you to feel into yourself. What's behind it for you? If you happen to be an image type, how come it's important to you what others think of you? If you're an image type, that might sound like, what? What are you talking about? Of course it's important. Why? What's important about how other people think about you? What does that matter to you? What does it hit? I'm not saying it shouldn't matter. I'm just saying start to ask yourself, how come? Why does it matter? What matters about it? Coming across a particular way, if you're a three, or a two or a four, actually, what's important about that? If you're a six, what's scary about being with myself in a consistent way? What's scary about allowing myself to be impulsive? to let my feelings just come up and kind of being with them and following them and acting on them. What am I afraid is going to happen? So what I'm inviting you to do is to start questioning some of these obstacles that we've uncovered this morning. Mm Okay, good. Okay. Okay, so Eugene's asking me to say more about the non-intellectual approach. I'd like you to really feel into the tendencies that you're exploring and to experientially feel what is the draw here. And you'll feel there's a draw to these tendencies. If you have difficulty paying attention to yourself, what's the pull away? Stay with the feel of it. That draw away, even as you're speaking, you might notice it. Your tendency to pull away from your direct experience. And sense that pull. What's happening here? What's good about this? What am I trying to do by pulling away? Am I protecting myself? Am I trying to hide? Am I? What am I doing here? What's going on? Feel it. As you're doing your monologue, and if you notice yourself becoming self-conscious, and let's just say, for instance, that you can't read your partner's faces and how they're responding to you, 
If you're an image type, that's probably going to bring something up inside. Like, you know, guys, am I doing okay? What do you think? <laughs> if that tendency starts to come up, feel it. What matters about what they say? What's more important about getting a beat on how they're responding to you than staying with the truth of your own experience? What honestly is more important about that? Now, you may find, as you do this exploration, that there's some historical content to it. That's undoubtedly going to arise as you stay with it. Just allow that to be part of your exploration. Okay? Yeah. Same or different groups as this one? Um, good question. What do you think? <coughs> Whatever you want to do. Same or different groups. It doesn't matter. Whatever you'd like to do. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, what keeps you out of your belly? What's important about not staying with yourself? That's a different way of putting it. What's important about not sensing your body? Okay, so is anyone completely lost with what I'm asking you to do? Does it feel too difficult? <laughs> no? Okay. Give it give it your best shot. Okay, and let's be back at four fifteen. Huh? Yeah, and time yourselves. Want to comment on their experience. No. <laughs> yes. Actually, maybe maybe we can pass the mic for this question and comment period. I have to say, it was really intense. Um, for me, as a five type, hearing the emotions of others and really feeling their emotions, their pain, and coming to grips with some things of my own. I think the most enlightening thing about it was that just because people look a certain way on the outside or, you know, we have these ideas of them, I think we're all kind of similar once you start to to do some work and you realize what's going on. And even if you aren't doing any work, everybody's got stuff going on. Everybody's like, <laughs> you know, there's like this, this whole cesspool under there bubbling up. Like, you know, the La Brea tar pits or something. But on the outside is Disneyland. Everything's great. <laughs> but when you get down under there, and that's what's been really powerful about here, is yeah. just kind of hearing and every time we keep getting under there. Yep. And even though you got all that stuff bubbling up, you're still okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And the more you let it bubble up, the more it purifies. Spiritual lava lamp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. 
Anyone else? Anyone else want to demonstrate the virtue of courage? <laughs> okay. I thought it was valuable having the whole time uninterrupted. It was for each of us, but for me, I experienced um, it was it was an example, I think, or of the beginning of the practice of keeping and staying with it and working it and asking more questions and going further. Mm-hmm. So I get more of a feel for how to do that. So as an experience, it was valuable that way. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. How did it feel to you? It felt like there are um, there are parts of myself I haven't looked at, and that it's um, inspires trepidation. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, but that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of feel like. I mean, I think I've known that I need to do that, but I haven't really had a process. So uh-huh. I feel more like I have a process now. So I'm grateful for that. Great, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that many people find is that even though what we encounter might feel like the La Brea Tar Pits, that there's something about being with the truth of that because we know it's there anyway. You know, and letting ourselves really be with it is a relief. And we're getting closer, as we settle into ourselves, we're getting closer to what's beyond all of that. We're going deeper into ourselves. And even though it's unpleasant sometimes, and at the beginning it can be really unpleasant, really, really unpleasant, um, it has a particular kind of pleasure to it and satisfaction. So hopefully you've had a taste of that. Can I ask a question about that? Sure. Is that a like you were you mentioned earlier like walking through to the other side? Yeah. As I heard it. Yeah. That would be that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing. Right. Right. Going through what's there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kind of a practical question. Mm-hmm. I've not ever worked with the um Enneagram before. Uh huh. So I'm quite overwhelmed after today. Yeah. But it's making a lot of sense. I'm very curious and interested. What would be good choices for first readings? You have several books. One might be more appropriate to start with than Excuse another. Excuse me? What? I said you have several books. One might be more appropriate to start Actually, with than another. I only have one that's out. My second book is coming out in May, so it's not, it's not out yet. So that makes it easier. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Also, any questions that you have? of any sort, quite welcome. I always feel so deficient when I'm asked to feel Uh that I just kind of choke up and feel deficient. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
When you say you feel deficient, what do you mean? What's the feeling of that? Well, like I can't get to those feelings. Okay. What's that experience like? <coughs> of not being able to get to the feelings. What is it that you're in touch with? Some kind of <coughs> choking up. A choking, a choking up. Yeah. Is there a feeling behind it? An emotion or... A physical feeling? Yeah. Kind of tightness around the neck. Uh-huh. Okay. If you stay with the tightness for just a minute, what's it feel like? And when I say that, I mean, what is your experience of it like? Kind of gray, uh -huh. kind of fuzzy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I would encourage you to keep staying with it because that's what you're feeling. That's what you're feeling. We, we use the word feeling to talk both about physical sensations, experiential sensations, as well as emotions. <laughs> All of that is what's important to come into contact with. And one of the things that I'm very fond of saying is that nothing is a feeling. The feeling of, you know, when people say, I'm not experiencing anything, what is that lack of feeling like? You know, is it an absence? Is it the presence of absence? Is it like a vacuum? is what's it like exactly? That's inquiry. That'll help your experience deepen. So there's nothing in particular to be felt, but exactly what it is that's happening inside of you. Does that help? Yes. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I said I sort of have the urge to classify other people. Uh-oh, I can see what's coming. <laughs> what, what should I watch out for? Oh, no? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, that, that I thought you were going to try to classify me. Okay. <laughs> what should you watch out for? I think you probably, it would be skillful to inquire into what that urge is all about, what it does for you to classify them. Okay? Okay. Yeah, could you pass the mic this way? Uh, yeah, I first learned about the Enneagram a few years ago and read your book about a year or two ago and have been longing for uh, some kind of group workshop like this. And I'm so grateful that uh, you and Eugene have put this together. Um, and I'm wondering if there's any, if you, if you have um, any intention or know of anyone who will continue doing some ongoing workshops because as wonderful as today is, it just feels like it's an introduction to mm -hmm. this process. Mm -hmm. um, or, or if not, 
um, I, I can sort of see, and I don't, maybe I'm not seeing this clearly, but I sort of see that there's a connection between the Enneagram and inquiry work, that you could use inquiry to, to look at the questions on the, about the Enneagram, but it seems like it would be good to have it guided rather than like a, a Kalyanamito or a small group doing it. So would you say that's a good thing to have a small group working on something like that, or will you be providing some more workshops in the area? And I, I would really be happy if you did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, we're talking about it, right? We'll 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 give it some some thought. Uh, my my schedule's pretty packed, but there are a number of people who've worked with me for a number of years, so uh, maybe we can see what we can sort out. Well, so how, how many people would be interested in mm. some kind of ongoing class at Spirit Rock, let's say? Okay. 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 Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, up here in the front. Uh, yeah, I just trying to. I think can Can you wait for the mic? Sure. Just a sec. If you, um, Zan, if you could just clarify, I'm trying to. I thought you said something about around age 28 when the Saturn or whatever planet was. Uh, uh, so, but the but the idea was that that is when we really um, are fully manifested in our fixation. But I also thought that we're kind of more or less start that raw nerve starts developing, kind of at day one or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think psychologically that our personality or fixation, if we use those more or less synonymously, is pretty well formed in the first two, three, six years. Yeah, so, that's right. So I wonder if you can clarify that, that's what you right. meant by the year 28. or What I mean is that our, um, it's like our, uh, up until that time, what I see is that we can tend to move back and forth between the wings. We can swing between them. And by that age, uh, we come into psychological maturity as an adult. And so our style and our patterns and our behaviors are set at that point, if we're lucky. You know, if we've developed a strong enough ego structure, things, are, things cohere by that stage. And it's a gradual process. As you say, in the first few years of life, usually the first four years of life, we lose contact with our holy idea in conjunction with with losing contact with being. And uh, our personality isn't formed immediately, it develops, it takes shape. And our whole manifestation basically, you know, gets elaborated and finally concretized around that age. Okay? Thank you. Yes. Um, in one of your points uh, discussing, I think it was the seven, you talked about the map, uh, laying down the map in, to get the direct experience. And I've had a long relationship with the Enneagram. It's been a great tool for me. And I found years ago, um, in the words of Maslow, that when the whole, when all you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And I'm wondering if you ever found that the map of the Enneagram got in your way. Became uh, an obstacle? Yes. Um, I never have personally 
because because why? I think because my orientation to it was as part of deep experiential contact with myself. So that has always led the way for me. You know, and I, like sometimes people will ask me, well, about somebody who I've worked with, what their type is. And it hadn't, I, it never occurs to me to even ask myself that question until later. So, um, I don't know. I think I just value the direct experience so much that I let my understanding of the Enneagram follow rather than lead. Yeah, I guess I've been lucky that way. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Hang on just a sec. I don't know, my kids say I talk loud enough without this. Um, You indicated that if we had difficulty sort of identifying our own point, yeah. that you might have some um, some suggestions on how we can do that. Yeah. Is that sort of universal that you can give all of us or individually? If you can give it to all of us, I know there's a number of us that are having, that are new to the Enneagrams that would appreciate uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Uh, why don't you come talk to me for a few minutes at the end, individually? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Pass the mic forward, please. Just in the spirit of responding to your um, query, how people experience the um, process that we did together, mm-hmm. um, I I really welcomed the opportunity to um, have an audience to help me to be present with the feelings that were coming up um, because that's a lot of what I've been working on in my own life. So to, um, and what I noticed as a, as a side benefit to that, I mean, first off, it was really delicious to just be able to sort of bask as much as I, I overheated and I felt like I was in the hot seat and couldn't wait for the time to be up. I also welcomed that um, Openness, the yeah. space that it created. Yeah, yeah. But and what I noticed as um, a side effect was that it brought me into the present. It's a way of being. It's a technique, in, a, in essence, of mm-hmm. being in the in the power of now, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. The present. Yep. Yeah. So it, but I found it very therapeutic in that good. regard. Good. 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 So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Having others listen to us helps us listen to ourselves, you know, and, and the attention of another supports our attention to ourselves. And that's part of the benefit of being such relational creatures. Yeah. Yes. Um, you said that sixes have a fear of fully engaging with themselves and also that there's just an underlying feeling that the world is a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then in the inquiry part, you said to ask, you know, to ask ourselves, um, you know, why, why are we afraid to really be with ourselves or look to ourselves? So, I'm, so are you saying that that like if I'm a six, you know, I have a fear, I have a belief that the world is a dangerous place because I'm afraid to really be with myself? Or no, I'm not saying that. I, I didn't really understand like how the question related to uh -huh. the fear. Yeah. Um, what I'm saying, what I see is that our relationship to the world mirrors our relationship to ourselves. And that generally to the extent that we're afraid of the world outside of us, we're also afraid of the world inside of us. And we can't deal too directly with all the scary things outside of us in the world. But what we can deal with is our fear of ourselves. And just the fact of facing what we're afraid of deepens our access to ourselves and diminishes our fear. At the beginning it feels like the fear looms larger, but it's really the road to um, not being afraid of ourselves, not being afraid of our inner and outer reality. So that's what I meant. And when you say, like, fear of ourselves, do you mean, you're, you're saying, like, fear of our aggression or our power, like, is that sort of fear of losing control, or...? Could be. Could be any number of reasons. Yeah. 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 Yeah, sixes are often afraid simply to have power. And to feel the fullness of their aggression, as well as their sexuality. And often the fear is because of history in which they've seen abuses of those energies. But just because those energies have been abused doesn't mean that the energies themselves are abusive. So that's part of the learning for a six. Yes, I'm back. I'm talking from a four, probably. Um, and I'm wondering, like there's this lifelong yearning for something that's missing. And now there's a yearning for the story beyond that. Or, or, or not the story, you know, just mm -hmm. tired of that story. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, how do you work with that? You let yourself fully have the longing and fully feel it and get curious about it. You basically embrace the longing itself and let yourself really feel what's behind it. What am I really yearning for? And very often that'll take us exactly to what it is that we're yearning for. Yeah. 
Could you pass the mic forward? Did, did that answer your question? Okay. All the way up here. One of the things I noticed. Okay, one of the things I noticed um, in the um, monologue is there seems to be a subtle difference, at least for me, between um, asking what's behind something, inquiry, and um, something that I tend to do a lot, um, also feel like I'm speaking from a number four perspective, um, which is kind of questioning, but in a more judgmental way. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it feels like um, I find it very difficult to say, what's behind this, and not have it creep into, why aren't I over this? Um, mm -hmm. So I find myself um, just kind of in my daily thinking on that edge pretty much constantly, and for me, it feels like I'm it's a real danger um, to to kind of be in that line of mental thinking because I, um, I tend to you know just um, think and think and think and, and probe and it's and it's not in this way. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any ideas for skillful ways to. Um, for me, I, I feel like I've spent you know too much time questioning and thinking along certain lines to find what's behind things, and you know so I've tried. Um, kind of other things, and I'm wondering if I can kind of stick more with the inquiry without getting caught up in um, kind of judgmental um, and, and kind of um, brooding type of thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me that the question that needs to be entertained is, why judge yourself? I know it's not a small question. But I think it's a very important question. What's important about that? You know, and, and the question that you asked, why am I not over this? It's a good question. But not with the judgment. Why exactly? Because one of the things that we find is that our consciousness has very good reasons for operating the way it does. They're not current reasons. But they're solid in their own logic. You know, I'm continuing to behave this way because when I was a kid, that's how I got attention. Okay, you know, and if you really bring that out into the now, into the present, you can start to see, okay, that's really how I learned how to operate, and it's getting me attention, but... I'm not sure I like the kind of attention it's getting me. You know, and then you begin to make the whole pattern current. Not by trying to make a choice or a decision to make it different, but just by really examining the roots of your behavior. And one of the things that you're touching on is the superego. That's a huge thing to deal with. But it's something that everybody needs to deal with at the beginning of their work on themselves. Not just at the beginning, actually, all the way through. <laughs> you know, to, to really inquire and to 
try to understand why we're not relating to ourselves compassionately, how we feel that that's going to benefit us. You know, often we do it because we're staying in relationship to one of our parents internally. Well, they treated me that way, so I'm going to treat myself that way. And that way I have mom or dad. You know, that's a very logical reason. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's logical. It makes sense. And the more that we unearth those beliefs that we have, the more they can start to let go and relax. Because usually these beliefs are formed and shaped in the first few years of life. And we made decisions then that, you know, they, they, were, they were survival mechanisms. But at this point, we can begin to see, just by seeing them, that they're actually impeding our well-being rather than supporting it. And that changes things. It's not easy. I mean, I'm, I'm describing, you know, in a couple of minutes, a very long, very difficult process. But one that's entirely possible. Okay, I'll pass the mic that way. Start with you. I'm 26, so my Saturn hasn't risen yet. (laughs) Oh, it hasn't returned. Yeah. But (laughs) I know I'm a seven. I'm such a seven. Okay. It's scary. Um, (laughs) And so the problem with that is this whole planning thing. Yeah. And being 26 and being how society teaches you to have a plan and know where you're going or a five-year plan or a ten-year plan. So how do you plan without planning? (laughs) Well, you can make plans like a five-year plan, but the important thing is actually to inhabit that time as you're going through those five years. To be here, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not to be there while you're here. Now, one of the traps for sevens is being able to see where they're going and then believing they should already be there. Oh, yeah. And if they're not there, I give up. You know, but, but sobriety is really actually doing the things that it takes to get to where you see as potential for you. So there is such a thing as being able to create some sort of vision for yourself. Oh, sure. But just waking up to it as you go along. Yeah, and, and letting that vision be flexible. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I put lots of stars next to um, nothing ever changes. Our story doesn't change, but our relationship to our story changes. Yes. Well, I have an investment in believing that we can change our narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, So could you say a little bit more about that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The only thing I can say about it is that as our relationship to the narrative changes, our actual experience of the narrative changes. You know, so in a sense, we erase and rewrite our history, but not by trying to. 
So that's how I see it. But the storyline, you know, the, the outlines of it can't really change too much, I don't think. But that's just my opinion. Okay, there was another hand behind you, and then I think that'll be our last question. Uh, I discovered um, when I was talking with, in the group of three a very um, subtle distinction that I get confused about, which is um, <coughs> the, I, I'm, the idea of going through personality has a trigger for me of I'm not enough where I am mm -hmm. and perpetuates the inner ideal of of this ideal of who I know I have potentially in me and I will never uh -huh. meet. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I'm just wondering if you can help me um, distinguish the difference between that understanding as something that's moving, that, that's something that I don't already have within me. It, like I, I was aware of, I'm standing here at this edge and I, and I can experience a sense of moving through, of, of, of personality becoming transparent, and then this real pain of not, never quite getting through that. Uh -huh. And it, so there's this forward kind of projection outside of me. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, it, it's tricky because the, the only way through is by fully being present to what's here. So we have to give up the desire to get through it, to fully open to it. Uh, let's see what else I can say about that. It's a level, another level of letting go. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Eugene's saying it's another level of letting go. You have to let go. You, ha you have to let go ultimately. I mean, I think what drives us for a long time in inner work is wanting to get better, wanting to feel better, wanting our suffering to And paradoxically, we have to open to the suffering for it to begin to stop. And you can't want it to stop for it to start stopping. So it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. And a lot of it is really just having trust in the process, in your own process. That if you're really with yourself, and if you really contact your inner reality with curiosity and compassion, spaciousness and generosity, you'll see what happens. You'll find out. <laughs>